And so we're heading through the series on power. And we've been for the last few months, first of all, we started out in the big things, things like creation and then the order that God brought to the earth. And then last week, Amy brought us down into the particular, the way that God poured himself into the birth of Jesus and reminded us of the ways we now follow Jesus in transitioning barriers of many, many kinds. And today I'm going to talk about one particular barrier, the big barrier, the one we each have to transition alone. And where is God's power at that moment of transition? Kids, I don't know if you have ever climbed a really big mountain, and you know what it's like, you're really tired, and you get up, and you kind of get up, and eventually you get to the top, and you look down, maybe you look down into a valley, or maybe you look down onto a plain, and I want you to imagine for a while now that you've climbed a really big mountain, and that when you get to the other side, there's this amazing, beautiful land ahead of you. Perhaps you could write a little story about how it feels. Or perhaps you could draw a picture or tell someone what it felt like that time when you crossed a really, really high mountain. And when we talk about the barrier that we all have to cross, when we talk about dying, there are many metaphors we use. We talk about leaving or passing or crossing or going over or going before. Not dissimilar to the metaphor of climbing over a mountain and getting down into the other side. But the thing about this particular mountain that we're crossing is that it's a one-way path. We don't come back once we've crossed this particular mountain. My books for this week, I've got two actually. This week there's, there's this one, uh, Remember Death, and my sermon is kind of a homage to this book. I, I loved it. I found it very helpful by Matthew McCulloch. Um, and it's a, an excellent book. And the other one is Fleming Rutledge's book, The Crucifixion, Understanding the Death of Jesus Christ. A, a rather weighty tome, but a very good one if you're wanting to read more about the crucifixion. And that book, the Fleming Rutledge one, begins with this kind of idea that for most Christians, we tend to grasp one of two theologies, a theology of the cross or a theology of glory. And it's kind of like our preferred place. It's the place where we want to go when we're thinking about life and the universe and everything. The theology of the cross is a little harder because it tends to be centered at its heart about suffering, whereas the theology of glory appeals to our sense of comfort and the hope and the expectation of resurrection life and, and all those good things and the, the promise of blessing. And today my suggestion is, is that we have to live in that tension of both of those. The theology of the cross coupled with the theology of glory. So briefly we're going to start and look for a little bit at the theology of the cross and then we will transition to the theology of glory towards the end. So first of all, what do we know about the theology of the cross? Well, let's start with death. There are so many things that we know about death. Probably the first one is, is that for us, we regard it as very unknown and scary. If we had been born 100 years ago, even as children, we would have been much more familiar with death. We would have encountered it in our homes, the death perhaps of siblings when infant mortality rates were much higher, when the, there was less medicine available to us, fewer options, 
More people would have died, and more people would have died at home at a younger age. And whatever our age, the community would have been more involved and engaged in that death. Now death tends to happen in hospitals and hospices, and there's much to be thankful in that. But particularly in this age of COVID, they're very shut off. In unprecedented numbers, we are seeing people die without having their community around them, without having someone to hold their hand as they die. So death can feel very unknown and very scary. And of course, it's also inescapable. All of us know that we are going to die. We can fight illness, and we are encouraged to do so, and we're grateful for the medical advances which make it possible, but ultimately, we will die. And death will strip us of everything, all these things we've worked so hard to acquire and accumulate during our lives. It's incredibly humbling. It layers us all. It strips us all. It makes us somewhat insignificant. How many details do you know of the lives of your grandparents? Well, your grandparents, maybe. Your great-grandparents, probably not. We will die. And death is described in, in the scripture as an enemy. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul describes it as the last enemy to be destroyed. And so why do we as Christians spend so much time thinking about death? Well, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote so memorably, when Christ calls a man, he bids him, come and die. The theology of the cross involves this fundamental expectation that even as we live, we are called to be engaging with death. And that comes up repeatedly throughout the New Testament. So what does that mean? What does that mean that we have to engage with death while we live? Well, I think that there are two types of ways of doing this. I think there's the involuntary and there's the voluntary. And I'm going to call them involuntary suffering and voluntary suffering. Involuntary suffering is all the stuff which happens to us when we get sick, when we lose a job, when a driver who's driving under the influence crashes into us or someone we love. It can be physical. We might experience loss in our health, a miscarriage. We might experience emotional loss or circumstantial loss, loss of friends and family. And all of these opportunities give us a time to grieve and mourn and lament and recognize that we are living in a world where there is much involuntary suffering. People we know and love, as the ones we saw in the screen just now, will die. And so the suffering which is woven into the fabric of life is a reminder that death is with us. But we also remember that as we go into involuntary suffering, Christ always says that he will be with us, that he will never leave us, that he will never forsake us. And of course, we pray for healing. We pray for the Holy Spirit to come and change circumstances and situations. And sometimes, beautifully, the Holy Spirit does that work, and for which we're very grateful. But involuntary suffering is a reality of the lives that we live. But there's something more. There's also the opportunity for voluntary suffering. As Christ chose to go to the cross for us, 
So we also can choose to step in to voluntary suffering for the sake of others. This is the moment when we recognize that God is a God of justice and truth, and that we are invited to follow Christ into standing up against injustice, against oppression, against immorality, against unkindness and brutality. We're invited to step in front of people when they are under assault. There's an opportunity here to choose to step into places of discomfort in order to protect others. And these might lead to physical suffering. They might lead to other sufferings, losing a friendship, losing status, losing a position, losing finances, losing a job, losing some form of worldly standing that we have acquired in our lives. So why on earth would we do this? Why would we choose to step into voluntary suffering? Well, we do it because we're invited to love. We choose to suffer for the good of others, and we follow Jesus who chose for us to go ahead of us, stepping into voluntary suffering. Fleming Rutledge writes, Christianity does not recommend suffering for its own sake, and it is part of a Christian's task in the world to alleviate the suffering of others. By no stretch of the imagination, however, could Christianity ever be said to recommend the avoidance of suffering in the cause of love and justice. Perhaps the clearest way to sum this up is to say that the Christian faith, when anchored in the preaching of the cross, recognizes and accepts the place of suffering in the world for the sake of the kingdom of God. Another theologian, Douglas John Hall, calls, says it in this way, he calls for the church to understand itself as the community of the cross, the community that suffers with, and there is that word, suffers with is the word compassion, the community that willingly bears the stigma of the passion in service to others. And so even as we consider these ways of both voluntary and involuntary suffering, those words of the Beatitudes should still be ringing in your ears that we heard read to us just a few minutes ago. And those words of the Beatitudes are kind of familiar, and they say things like that we are blessed when we are poor in spirit when we mourn and are meek, when we hunger and thirst for righteousness, when we are persecuted, when other people revile us and persecute us and utter all kinds of evil against us <coughs> on the account of Christ. The Beatitudes sum up that we are going to, through our voluntary suffering, step into some form of blessing. And here we begin to see the bridge between the theology of the cross and the theology of glory that there is going to be blessing as a result of the suffering that we undergo. And some of that in the Beatitudes appears to be potentially now, before we cross into death. But did you notice how many of them said that we will inherit a reward in heaven when we see God, when we'll be called children of God? Some of this may happen now, but mostly these blessings are being laid up in store for us when we enter into the new heaven and the new earth, then it says we will rejoice and be glad, for our reward will be great in heaven. Before we die, we will have suffered. We will have suffered. It's not optional. 
Some of it's optional, but we will have suffered. And Jesus came, and he came, and he came, and went into glory once, and he suffered and he died before he did so. And this is the center of the theology of the cross, the fact that Jesus went before us. And when we look at the crucifixion, to be honest, it seems like the antithesis of all power. This very humble man coming, bruised and beaten, to be hung on the most shameful method of death. This doesn't look like a moment which epitomizes power. And to be honest, it's quite extraordinary that the early church was built on the death of a man on a cross. Because certainly at that time, they would have grasped far better than we can now the reality of the shameful nature of that death. It was an extraordinarily awful moment. And yet, the suffering on the cross is at the center of our discussion on the power of God. It is this moment which the whole of the Old Testament has built up to, and every moment after it is explained in its shadow. Again, as Fleming Rutledge puts it, the cross, incomparably vindicated by the resurrection, is the novum, the new factor in human experience, the definitive and world-changing act of God that makes the New Testament proclamation unique in all the world. Christianity is unique in having death at its very core, a particularly gruesome and shame-ridden death. This is the pivotal event in the history of the world. And on the cross, you can almost see death crowing as Christ was dying, thinking that it had won the victory, but only to be immediately crushed with defeat as Christ died and vanquished death. The crosses that we wear are empty, recognizing that Jesus' life did not simply end on the cross, that his defeated life became a resurrected life, and the whole of the Bible pivots on that one moment. And notably, week by week, when we come to the table, this is what we remember. This is the moment when Christ says, my body broken for you, my blood poured out for you. This is what he says that we need to remember week by week. It's his death. But the theology of the cross does lead to a theology of glory. Because Jesus did rise again. Jesus has ascended to the right hand of the Father. And I love that reading we heard from Ephesians a few minutes ago where Paul talks again about the power that was represented on the cross at the moment of the crucifixion and at the moment of the resurrection. He talk, uses the word power four times in two sentences. He almost can't use it enough as he calls to people to say to them, you may be suffering now, but this is the hope to which he has called you, the riches of the glorious inheritance of the saints. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Because of that death and that resurrection, the good news for us right now is that death is not our battle. Death is not our battle. We can battle to stay alive and we can battle all sorts of other things, but the battle is how we choose to live right now in this life. 
And so our battle should not perhaps be focused so much on death avoidance, but on being fully alive. And the life, the way we live now, will become the ground from which we will pivot when we die. And I believe that the choices of how we live now must include a choice on how we suffer. If we don't need to fear death, if we can choose to regard it not as a final defeat, and simply to regard it as a final barrier to be crossed before we reign forever with Christ, then we can choose to embrace both the theology of the cross and of glory. And that in this life, as we follow Christ, as we walk with him, doing the things that he invites us to do, to recognize that we will encounter suffering. And yet it is through this suffering and our concurrent mindfulness of death that we will be most alive. And so for now, what are we called to do? I think we are called to live with lowered expectations of comfort. That we should accept the reality and certainty of suffering. That we should refuse to be anxious. That we should allow ourselves to lament and grieve and cry and then to hope. To look to the promise of rising again with Christ and enjoying that feast that is prepared that ver those verses from Isaiah earlier, that moment when God is going to reverse the suffering of all people, when he will swallow up death and wipe away tears. Listen to it again and remember that God is choosing to talk about a real food feast, fabulous wines, a hearty meal, and resurrected Jesus more alive than ever. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. We're going to take a moment of quiet now. And I invite you to spend time both in grief and in hope. Mindful that we will die. We will rise again and we will feast with Christ. And yet to remember in the quiet, and to perhaps invite the Holy Spirit to show to you. Are there places where this week you should be stepping forward into voluntary suffering, accompanied and strengthened and empowered by the Holy Spirit, for the sake of others, for the sake of love? Amen.